John chapter 9 is where we're going to be at. John chapter 9. I feel like we need to pray before we get started here. So let's do that. Father, we just thank you again for this time of worship that we've had. And I just pray now as we come to your word and as we open it up and as we study and as we look at this story of the man born blind, God, as your spirit would just move through this place, God, that you would open our eyes, open our heart, that you would convict us where we need to be convicted, God. I pray that we would see Jesus for who he is and we would see ourselves for who we are, God, that we would see our need for him. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Well, we're in the middle of a six-week series where we've uh, been going through the Gospel of John, and it's going to take us up through Easter. And uh, John, who is the, one of the original 12 disciples, is the author of this book. He says, I chose particular stories and signs so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, John carefully formulates his Gospel to show us who Jesus is. Is Jesus the Son of God? Is Jesus the Messiah, the Savior of the world? Because if Jesus, if Jesus was not who he said he is, if he did not do the things that he said he did, then there's no point in us being here this morning. You know, we, we can just leave now and go home. But if Jesus is who he says he is, if he did do the things he said he did, if those things are real, then everything that Jesus said we need to pay attention to. Everything Jesus said has eternal significance. John wants his readers, his listeners, the doubters and the seekers and the skeptics to examine the facts, the stories, the signs, and see that Jesus is legit, that he is real, that he is engaging, that Jesus is more than you and I could ever imagine or fathom. And my prayer for you has been that we would experience that, that we would see that for ourselves, that we would see that Jesus is more than we could ever imagine or fathom. That he wants us to examine the facts. He wants us to have this relationship with Jesus. He wants us to experience a life-changing connection with Jesus. And that's our prayer, man, that, you, that we would just experience that, that we would grow in the gospel, and that our lives would be radically changed by that. One of the ways that John does this is through signs and miracles. John records seven miracles throughout the Gospel of John that we, that we see, and in, in, in the healing of the man born blind is the sixth miracle. And so today we're going to be looking at that miracle, John chapter 9. And uh, just, just so you know, the, the slide up here, th this is the title of my sermon, and, and I don't want you guys to be like the whole sermon trying to figure out what this is and like not really paying attention to me. So I'm going to go ahead and tell you what it is, okay? My wife, she had this fabulous idea. I said, can you make a slide for me? She's like, yeah. And then she's like, well, let's do it this way. And I was like, that's a good idea. That is an eye chart, right? You guys recognize that, okay? And the title of my sermon is, Are You Blind or Do You See? Does that make sense? Are you blind or do you see? So now that that's out of the way, uh, you don't have to sit there and be like, what is that? Wait, I don't understand. All right, so, all right. 
John chapter 9, you guys are there. Uh, just, just real quick, in this passage, what we're going to do, this is a long passage, it's like 41 verses, and so obviously we're not going to read the whole text, but in this passage we're going to look at three groups of people. We're going to look at the disciples, the Pharisees, and the man who was healed. And, and we learn something from all three groups. From the disciples we learn something about pain and suffering. From the Pharisees we learn something about spiritual blindness and from the man, we learn what heals it all. All right? So if you guys would, join with me there. Uh, John chapter 9, starting in verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, which means teacher, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I'm going to stop right there for a second because these opening verses deal with one of the most difficult mysteries of life, and that is pain and suffering. Whenever we experience pain and suffering, there's always the why question that's attached to it. Why me? Why this? Why now? Why God? Why God. Many doubters and skeptics ask the question, if God is loving, then how can he allow pain and suffering? And that's a good theological question. And the disciples' question, it's a good theological question. But the disciples' question has an interesting twist to it. I don't know if you caught that twist or not. See, they, they asked the question of Jesus, but they already assumed the answer. Did you see what it was? They said, Rabbi, who sinned? They're assuming the answer. The prevailing notion throughout the centuries and even today is that if you are suffering or having a hard time, if you're having a hard life, then you must have done something to deserve it. That's the prevailing notion. And that's prevalent even today, believe it or not. Okay? And because today you hear people say things like this, and I've heard this many times. They say, man, what have I done to deserve this? You guys heard that before? But the, but the most popular one is this. I've heard people say this, I must have done something to get on God's bad side. And they may not phrase it just like that, but it's something similar to that, right? I must have done something to get God mad at me or get on my bad side. Now, now there's three reasons why that is just absolutely poor theology. Three reasons, okay? Just real quickly, I'll tell you what it is. Because for the people who maybe don't experience a whole lot of pain or suffering, uh, it becomes self-righteousness. Right? They, they, they look at themselves, and inside, they don't necessarily verbally say this, but they're saying to themselves, I'm not suffering, I'm not like that, they must have done something, right? It, 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 so, so it's kind of a self-righteous view, like, man, I've done something, I'm, I'm good, I, I, you know, God is good, pleased with me, and so it becomes self-righteousness. And second thing, it's not true to the facts, right? I mean, there are plenty of good people who serve God, who do great things for Jesus, who suffer and go through all kinds of pain through their whole life. And then there are, then there are people who are just tyrants, man, people who are just horribly evil that go through life and, and have a peaceful life and end up dying in their sleep. So, so it's just not true to the facts. And then thirdly, it's just cruel, cruel to the person who's suffering. But I want you to know Jesus rejects this premise. Jesus rejects and he says, neither this blindness is not the result of somebody's sin. 
Now, in order for us to get a proper view of sin and suffering from Jesus, we need to look at a similar passage in the Gospel of Luke. You can write this down. Luke 13, where Jesus is asked an identical question. In that passage, there are two groups of two, two separate events that happen. First, it says that a group of people were killed at a public event. Now, we don't know what that public event was. We don't know what happened. But it just says they were killed at a public event. The second group, it says that a tower fell on them and it killed them. And the question to Jesus is this, did these things happen because they were worse sinners? See, there's that assumption again. By the way, that's also the assumption of Job's friends in the Old Testament. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, and if you've read through the book of Job, you'll know that Job's friends, who were super encouraging, by the way, say that sarcastically, right? And they, they, they come to Job and they're like, dude, man, you're having a rough life. You're having a hard life. You're experiencing all this pain and suffering. You must have done something to deserve it. What have you done wrong? God is, must be mad at you. You need to repent, get things right. And so that's their assumption as well. But I want you to notice Jesus' response in Luke 13. I'll read it for you. His response is, no, they weren't worse sinners. Again, he rejects the premise. But then he adds, but repent or you will all likewise perish. Now, what's Jesus saying there? Right, because if you read that, it's kind of like confusing. But what Jesus is doing is he's drawing upon the biblical teaching found all the way back in Genesis 3 of a fallen, broken world. See, God did not originally create the world with suffering in it. He created a paradise, free of death, disease, suffering, and sickness. But when the human race turned from God and rebelled against God, everything in the world stopped working properly. Everything that God created experienced brokenness. Sin entered the world. Death entered the world. Suffering and pain entered the world. And all these bad things come into the world and they wreak havoc on everything. Therefore, what Jesus is saying in Luke 13 is that the world, in a sense, is getting what it deserves. In a sense, the world is getting what it deserves. He says, repent, because all of us deserve to have a tower fall on us. That's basically what Jesus is saying there. So it is correct to say then that general sin, when sin entered the world, general sin does lead to general suffering, right? That's correct to say that. We all suffer because of sin in general, but this does not mean that the degree of suffering or disability is a measure of a person's moral failure. Did you catch that? We're all going to suffer because of general sin. That's just the the nature of it. But the degree of which we suffer, the degree of disability in our life is not a measure of a person's moral failure. It's not like every time you tell a lie, your nose is going to get bigger like Pinocchio. Okay? It's not like you went out and you did something bad, and then you just, as, soon as, you, as soon as you leave, where you're going to go out and fall down and break your arm. It's not the way it works. And so Jesus rejects the idea in John 9, and he gives us the right answer. And the right answer is, he says, it's mysterious. God has a purpose, and the point is God has work to do. Now, now let me encourage you this morning by pointing out what it says in verse 1. It says, when Jesus passed by, he saw. He saw. Understand, this miracle takes place during one of the most popular festivals of the year, the Feast of Tabernacles. And there would have been thousands of people walking through Jerusalem And it would have been very easy for Jesus just to kind of pass right on by, right? I mean, you got people that are bumping into Jesus. You got people that are bumping into the disciples. You got all these distractions. 
It would have been very easy for Jesus just to pass right on by this man, but Jesus passes by and he saw this man and his suffering. Jesus stops and takes notice. He saw and he had compassion for this man. I want you to take comfort this morning in knowing that when you experience pain and suffering, that God takes notice. He sees your pain. He sees your hurt. He sees your isolation. He's right there in the moment that you doubt him most and he's not scared away because of your doubt. But rather, he steps in that moment. He steps in that situation. He identifies with you because in Jesus Christ, God experienced the greatest depths of pain and suffering. Now, now we may not understand it. We may not ever fully know why. We may never have all the answers. And, that, and absolutely, that can be frustrating. But as Christians, we can be encouraged because we are not blind to our world's present brokenness. Nor are we pessimistic about our future. But rather, our hope is in Jesus, who is redeeming our pain and suffering for his purposes, Right? That's encouraging. So that's what we learn from the disciples, okay, about pain and suffering. Before we, we go to the next thing, I, I really quickly want to point something out because I love this. Is, uh, because the words, of Jesus, the words of Jesus are always important, right? I mean, every time Jesus speaks, we need to pay attention. But the actions of Jesus are also equally important. In verse 6, this is what it says. I want you to notice this. It says, having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. When he anointed the man's eyes with mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. Now why in the world did Jesus spit and make mud? Why did Jesus do that? I mean, think about it. Jesus could have easily just said the words, right? Jesus could have said, Dude, you're, you're healed. And the man would have been completely restored. Now, now, if you're a germaphobe in here and you, you hear this, this story, you're thinking, dude, this is, this is absolutely disgusting, right? I mean, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with his saliva. His disciples are probably thinking, dude, you are crazy. What are you doing? Like, Jesus is so creative, right? I mean, it's just unbelievable. But why did he spit? Well, the answer is actually in the text. If you look at verse 14, it tells us that Jesus performs this miracle on what day? Sabbath day. Sabbath day. Now, according to the Sabbath law, you weren't supposed to do work on the Sabbath. And according to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, guess what was considered work? <laughs> that was making mud. That was considered work on the Sabbath. All right? And Jesus knew this. Now, catch this. Jesus knew this, and I believe that Jesus was intentionally pushing their buttons. I'm, I'm serious. I believe he was doing this. He knew that the outrage, the outrage that this would cause. He's turning up the heat of their hatred towards him. You know why he's doing that? Because his time is getting closer to when he's going to have to go to the cross. And he's stoking the fire. He's like, I want to make sure these guys are riled up enough that they're going to send me to the cross. So Jesus is intentionally doing things to stir the pot, to, to make them just outrageous. Dude, this, this guy needs to die. He needs to be killed. Now let's look and see. Isn't that cool? Now let's look and see 
uh, what we learn from the Pharisees. It's clear from the rest of this chapter that this story is more than just giving sight to a blind man. It's about spiritual blindness, okay? So the question is, what is spiritual blindness? What is spiritual blindness? Well, it was shortly after Christmas last year, uh, this past Christmas, that we realized our oldest son, Jude, needed glasses. Now, he's four and a half, and so he really isn't old enough to comprehend that his eyesight was not good, okay? He just didn't understand it. He just assumed that being, uh, not being able to see well was kind of a normal thing, and, and actually, you know, he, he kind of, for a short period of time, lived a frustrated life. But we started noticing little things that kind of tipped us off that there might be a problem. The kid loves to draw in color, and he's got such a creative mind. Like, he, he, will, he will watch a movie, or he'll be out somewhere, and he'll see something, and he'll want to go back to the kitchen table with his markers, and he wants to recreate it on paper. And he does a pretty good job of it. He loves to color and draw. But we noticed that he, was, he wasn't really wanting to draw as much as he used to. And we're like, I wonder why. I think he just lost the interest or something, right? I, I don't know. But then we noticed that when we asked him to go get something for us, he would always come back and say, I can't see it. I don't know where it's at. Now, I know that that's probably typical for most four-and-a-half-year-olds, right? I mean, heck, that's probably typical for most men, right? You know, and then they go, go get something for us, you know, and it's like, I can't see it. I don't, Robin's like, take my eyes, okay, and go and look for this, right? But, but well, with Jude, it was different. Now, here, here's why it was different with Jude, okay? One night, I kid you not, I'm sitting there at the kitchen sink, I'm washing dishes, and my phone is laying over by the table. It's the only thing on the table. Nothing else is on the table, and Jude walks by, and I said, hey, buddy. I said, do you mind grabbing Daddy's phone for me, please? He walks over the table. He's looking at the table, and he says, where, Daddy? I said, dude, seriously? You can't see my phone sitting on the table? I said, like, if it had been a snake, it'd bit you. You know what I mean? Like, it's right there. And I was like, you can't see that? And so I thought he was just being silly, right? But then we started noticing that whenever Jude would look at you, face-to-face, and he would try to focus in on you, that his left eye would begin to drift inward. And so he's like, okay, maybe we need to take him to an eye doctor. And sure enough, we took him to the eye doctor, and, uh, and, and, and sure enough, man, our kid was blind as a bat, right? He just couldn't see. But again, he's four, he's four, and he thought his eyesight was normal. It's the same with spiritual blindness. People don't realize their need for Jesus. They don't see it. They have the inability to see Christ. The Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4 that the God of this world, which is Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. They're either blind by their culture around them or they're blind by their own self-righteousness and they don't even know it. And we see this clearly from this text from the Pharisees. The man is healed and he is ecstatic. He goes back to his... I mean, the rest of the chapter is really kind of comical, and it's, it's kind of cool, and I would encourage you to go back and read it. I'm going to kind of give you a brief overview here. But the man comes back to his neighborhood, and he's rejoicing, and the people in his neighborhood, like, they can't believe it. They're like, is this the same guy? I don't know. He, he looks like the same guy, but surely this isn't the same guy. And I love this part because the man shouts out, he says, I am the man. I think that's where that saying comes from, right? <laughs> I am the man, Right? I am the man. So they take the man to the Pharisees and they begin to question him about how he received his sight. And I want you to notice verse 16, they said, the Pharisees, this is what they say. They said, this man, Jesus, is not from God. Then the Pharisees bring in the man's parents for interrogation. They said, is this your son? 
This is our son. Yes, he was born blind. How he sees, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. And the reason why they say that is because in verse 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus Christ, that's the culture that they, that they were surrounded by, he was to be put out of the synagogue. That was a big deal in Jesus' day. To be put out of the synagogue means that you, you, you became a social outcast. And so his parents feared that. And I, hey, look, man, our son is of age. You ask that dude. You ask him. So for a second time, the Pharisees summons the man who had been born blind. And in verse 24, they say, this man, Jesus, this is the Pharisees talking, this man, Jesus, is a sinner. See, there's that self-righteousness. This man, Jesus, he's a sinner. And the man replied, I love this. He said, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. But one thing I do know, though I was blind, now I see. Now, I don't know if he's a sinner or not, man, but yo, I know I see. <laughs> you know, I was blind and now I see. The Pharisees continue to badger the man. Tell us how he opened your eyes. And the man replies, said, I told you, man, you would not listen. And then he throws in a jab. I love this. The man, he's kind of witty. He says, do you want to become his disciples too? Man, that, just, that, 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 that outraged the Pharisees. They were like, what? What? I mean, they, they said, we are disciples of Moses. Moses is in the Old Testament. We are disciples of Moses. And they said, how dare you lecture us? You were born in utter sin. Utter sin. And then they cast the man out. Do you see the spiritual blindness there? Do you see that? The Pharisees had created this culture of superiority. They had spiritual pride. They were self-righteous. They were in control. They knew it all. And I love the gospel irony in all this. The blind man who sees for the first time in his life reveals the long-standing blindness of the Pharisees. They see only law, but the healed man sees the Messiah to whom the law points. In their pride, the Pharisees can only boast about Moses, but in his humility, the healed man only boasts about Jesus. The Pharisees charge the man with walking in darkness of sin, and yet he sees the light of the world. Do you see that? That is spiritual blindness. And listen, and until the Holy Spirit opens our eyes spiritually, you will not be able to see the reality of sin and grace. And here's the reality. There are plenty of people, even church-going people, myself included, who were in the church, who were raised in the church, who heard the gospel message that I'm a sinner and even agreed with it. Like, I heard that message growing up. I knew that. I heard that. I, I'm a sinner. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, here, here's the thing, man. Most people in this world, most people know deep down that something isn't right. Would you agree with that? I mean, most people in, deep down, they know that something's not right. But it's only when the Holy Spirit opens your eyes that you realize you're a sinner. See, it becomes real to you. And you begin to see that beneath the surface and into your heart, you see just how dirty your heart is. See, the Holy Spirit enables you to see, and that's not a pretty sight, by the way. That's why people don't go there. 
The Holy Spirit enables you to see that oftentimes your intentions are good, but your motives aren't. The Holy Spirit helps us see the pride and self-righteousness. Look at what I've done. Uh, look at all these people I've helped. Look, at, I'm out here serving, man. Look at me. Pat me on the back. You know what I'm saying? I, I've done a good deed here. Yeah, I helped this person out. They were in need, right? Pride and self-righteousness. The desire to try and get God to bless you. Man, if I do this, then maybe God will bless me. If I do this, then maybe I'll get on God's side and I won't experience pain and suffering, right? The desire to control. Try to control God. Try to control others. And when the Holy Spirit reveals those things, you know what that's called? It's called the conviction of sin. It's called the conviction of sin. And the conviction of sin, when the conviction of sin comes, uh, the beauty of grace follows. Again, you may have grown up always hearing, man, Jesus died on the cross for you. And you may have heard that. And you may have, you know, just grown up in a church. That's what you heard. Yeah, Jesus died on the cross for me. I know that. I know that. But listen, man, when sin becomes real to you, grace becomes real to you. It begins to change you. It's not some abstract idea out there. Yeah, I've been saved by the grace of God. It's not some abstract idea, man. It becomes real to you. The gospel begins to go to work in your heart. It begins to, to dig deep in there, man, to kind of uh, pull up all these things that are in there, man, and you begin to see just how dirty it is. Man, this is absolutely critical. Absolutely critical. Have you had your spiritual sight given to you? Have you had your spiritual sight given to you? Now, at the end of the chapter, Jesus says two things about spiritual blindness that are extremely important for us to understand before we can move on about what to do about it. In verse 39, Jesus makes a statement that is overheard by the Pharisees, and then he makes an even stronger statement. This is what he says. He says, For judgment I came into the world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, Are we also blind? Now, what's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that there are people out there who appear to have it all together. They're smart. They're wealthy. They're self-righteous. They're prideful. They're moralists. They follow all the rules. They're the cream of the crop. And when it comes to the world's standards, they are most advantaged. Does that make sense? You know what I'm saying by that? When it comes to the world, they're most advantaged. But when it comes to the gospel and hearing the gospel, these people are actually most disadvantaged. But when it comes to the God, but when it comes, and then Jesus says the people who are broken, the humble, the down and out, the outcast, the people who are poor, they're the ones by who the world standards are most disadvantaged. And yet when it comes to the gospel and hearing the gospel, these people are actually most advantaged. Now why is that? Because the gospel says that you are a sinner saved by grace. Which means it doesn't matter how educated or uneducated you are. It doesn't matter how wealthy or poor you are. It doesn't matter how righteous or what a failure you are. It doesn't matter because we are all blind beggars in need of sheer grace. Amen? We're all equal. We're all on level ground. We've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter, man. We're all blind beggars 
in need of Jesus Christ. See, we've got nothing. We've got nothing to commend. Or Charlie said it, we have no righteousness to give. It's sheer grace. And that's not nearly as difficult, humanly speaking, for a person who has failed to admit. For a person who is down and out or for a person who is outcast, it's not nearly as hard for them to admit that, yeah, I'm a sinner. But for the Pharisee, for the Pharisee, it's the self-righteous, it's the moralist, it's, it's the one who, man, I've got it all together. It's a lot harder for them to admit that they need Jesus, right? It's a lot harder for them to see that. They don't see it. Now, the, now the second thing Jesus says is pretty straightforward. In verse 41, he says, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. In other words, he says, if you could see your need for me, if you could see me, then you would have no guilt. But now you say, we see their self-righteousness, your guilt remains. I mean, they're blind to their own blindness. That, that's about as bad as it can get, right? I mean, that's, they, you can't get any worse than that. They're blind to their own spiritual blindness. I mean, think about this. To be confronted by a mighty act of God, to see that a man who had been born blind was healed, and to reject that sounds absurd, doesn't it? Like, doesn't that sound crazy? And yet that is what they do. Well, that's what we learn from the Pharisees. And now from the man we learn how spiritual blindness is healed. And the whole point of the story is not just about healing a man's physical blindness, but also healing his spiritual blindness. So it's no surprise when Jesus says to the man in verse 35, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the man replies, who is he, sir, that I may believe? And Jesus answered, you have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. And the man replied, Lord, I believe. He came to faith. And it says he worshipped him. He worshipped him. Now, the word worship is a key word in that sentence because worship gets to the heart of spiritual blindness and sight. And I don't mean just coming to church and singing songs. I mean, those are great things to do, right? Those are, those are expressions of worship. But worship is defined by the priority we place on God, on who God is in our lives. Because when we worship the wrong thing, it's called an idol. And that is the ultimate cause of your blindness. And therefore, worshiping the right thing, Jesus, is the only way to cure your spiritual blindness. Jesus is the, is the thing that will satisfy you the most. If you worship anything else, if we try to find satisfaction in anything else, we will never be able to see our own flaws. We will come to church, try to live a good life, hope that God blesses us, always looking for validation from other people. But we are blind to our own need, to our own faults. And whenever we go to something else besides Jesus, we'll always come away feeling empty and dissatisfied. We need to realize that God's love for us is a measure of our worth, nothing else. And so the degree to which you worship, the depth to which you give God your heart, that's when you will find your heart cleansed. That's the cure. So how does that happen? It only happens when you see what happened to Jesus on the cross. See, when Jesus was on the cross, the Bible says that at the sixth hour, in Jewish time, the day started at 6 a.m. So the sixth hour would have been 12 p.m., high noon. It says at the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m. For three hours, 
three hours, the world was in complete darkness. Complete darkness. But, but, but this wasn't just a physical darkness. It was a spiritual darkness. Because on the cross, Jesus cries out. What does he cry out? He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, throughout Jesus' ministry, how did, he, how did he address God? He always addressed him as what? Father. My God, my God. That's impersonable. It's impersonable. At that moment, Jesus was being plunged into spiritual darkness. At that moment, Jesus was taking our sin. At that moment, Jesus was enduring the full wrath of God, our sin, on himself. Jesus had perfect spiritual sight. He could see into people's hearts, but on the cross, he was being plunged into spiritual darkness. Jesus was broken on the cross so that you and I could be mended. Jesus was broken on the cross so that you and I, who have been broken by sin, could be mended. Jesus was plunged into spiritual darkness so that we could be brought into the light. Listen, he did that for you. He did that for you. He did it for you. And if you see him doing that for you, and you even begin to say thank you, you've begun to worship. You've begun to worship and your sight has begun to clear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for scripture like this. We thank you for your word. Father, I just pray for our spiritual blindness. Father, I pray that we would see our need for Jesus. God, I pray that we would man, that we would just Man, if we're playing games, I pray that we would stop that. Father, if we're trying to find validation from anybody other than you, God, I pray that we would put that to death. Father, I just pray now that during this time, your spirit would just continue to move through this place. God, that you would convict us of our sin so that we may experience the grace of Jesus Christ, that we may be changed and transformed, that you can begin to work on our hearts. God, that's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to sing a, a song here, and I just want to encourage you that, man, if you need prayer, if you are uh, just struggling with something in your life, man, you're going through some type of circumstance, you know, you're experiencing that pain and suffering, and you're just, man, what, what's going on here? Why is this happening? Man, I just invite you to come over here. I'm going to ask Arthur and Charlotte, would you guys come up again, maybe up here to the side, and just, if you need prayer, man, they would love to pray with you, man. But on the other hand, you know, I would love to talk to you about spiritual, spiritual darkness. I would love to talk to you about receiving that light, about having your eyes opened, about coming to faith and knowing Jesus Christ, about worshiping Him. I'd love to talk to you about what that means, man, about repenting of your sin and confessing Jesus as Lord. I'd love to talk to you about that this morning. So as we sing, man, feel free to come down. And let's do that, right? Come on, let's do it.